Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. My name is Craig Hadley and I am one of the pastors here at Paradox Church in Redlands, California. Today we are looking at Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And today's episode is entitled The Blessing and the Curse of the Mirror. About a year ago, I joined a conglomerate of pastors who represent different churches here in the city of Redlands. Now, this has been a great group for me to be a part of. I've been able to share stories. Uh, I've heard how other churches have navigated the pandemic. And so it's just been a really rewarding experience. And this past month, they told me that it's time for us to participate in the annual pulpit exchange that happens between the churches. And what this means is that the churches swap pastors for one weekend of the year, and we get to hear from other perspectives. So with that, we had the Reverend Dr. Sean Zambros preach at Paradox this past Saturday, and I wrote this sermon for the Redlands United Church of Christ on January 17. This was on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, which is why I selected this text and ended up writing this sermon. So with that in mind, let's dive right into it, shall we? About 2,000 years ago, on the other side of the planet, Jesus Christ traveled to Jerusalem on a dusty road without much shade. On the way, he stopped to tell a story in, most likely, the Aramaic language. Luke records that Jesus told this story to anyone who believed that they were righteous, and their self-righteousness had led them to hold contempt for another human being. In other words, Jesus told this story for every living person who has ever walked the earth. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now in Jesus's day and age, a Pharisee is someone from the religious elite of society. For a modern day parallel, imagine a Pharisee is someone with an institutional title like bishop, or reverend doctor, or ordained minister of the gospel. The tax collector, on the other hand, is someone who betrayed their own government, or their own religion, or their own family for personal gain. For this modern-day parallel, imagine someone who you believe is actively working toward the destruction of the country right now. My guess is you can bring someone to mind rather quickly in today's hyper-partisan era. So when Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, everyone assumes that the Pharisee will be the hero and the tax collector will be the villain. Jesus continues with the parable. He says, the Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. Now the Pharisee expresses appreciation toward God for his own spiritual enlightenment. He believes that this enlightenment is what keeps him off the streets and away from the thieves, the rogues, the adulterers, and the tax collectors. Because of the gratitude he feels toward God for giving him this enlightenment, the Pharisee repays God with unwavering religious devotion, which the Pharisee believes fuels his enlightenment which keeps him off the streets, and so on and so forth. 
The Pharisee views religion and enlightenment as being very cyclical in nature. Jesus then told of a second prayer at the temple. He says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And with just seven words, the tax collector's prayer comes to an end. In this story, the tax collector is a sinner. The Pharisee is devoted to his religion. The sky is blue and the Pope is Catholic. This parable is about as predictable as parables can be. But in his closing analysis of the parable, Jesus turns the entire story on its head. He says, I tell you, the tax collector went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. Now this conclusion that Jesus gives should give all of us pause. Remember, the tax collector is the one who you believe to be actively working toward the destruction of our nation. Jesus audaciously makes that person, the traitor, the hero of the story. Now, Jesus offers a paradoxical explanation for these inverted ethics. He goes on to say, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. In the very next verse, Jesus gets distracted by some adorable infants, and we receive no further explanation about the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Which raises the question, why did Jesus make the tax collector the hero in this parable? To attempt to answer that question, let's look closely at the similarities between these two different men. Both men are practicing the same religion at the same religious location and participating in the same religious discipline, which is prayer. While their prayers are quite different, the subject of their prayers is the same. They are both praying about the self. For me, both men went to the temple to pray, asking the question, who am I? And in this story, both men find an answer to that question in prayer. For that reason, I invite you to think about prayer in this parable as a mirror. Now, I grew up in the church and attended church school all the way until college. Over a period of decades, pastors and teachers taught me this parable at length. They always drew the same conclusion. The reason that Jesus celebrates the tax collector as the hero is because the tax collector recognizes his sinful human nature. He then expresses his disgust with himself in the eyes of God. So when I ask the question, who am I in prayer? Religion expects me to arrive at the same answer of the tax collector, which is, I am a sinner. And every human being, according to religion, bears this identity because they are human. In other words, religion's application of this parable is that the true followers of God are the ones with the lowest self-esteem. My friends, this is destructive theology, and we need to stop teaching it immediately. The word gospel means good news, and the bodily incarnation of Christ is God's irrefutable declaration that it is good to be human. 
And if religion's foundational belief is that human beings are sinful because they are human, then that religion is literally anti-Christ. And when we consider that Jesus Christ is the one teaching this parable, then we can easily let go of this misinformed application that God wants us to be repulsed by our own humanity. Which brings us to the Pharisee's prayer. The Pharisee thanks God that he is not like the other sinners on the streets. And when he goes to the prayer with the question, who am I? Prayer reflects back to him, I have earned God's love. While this idea may sound well and good, there is a disturbing reality tied to this theology. Because if you can earn God's love, then that means that none of us are born into God's love. In this paradigm, receiving God's love ceases to be a gift of grace. And instead, receiving God's love becomes a position of status. This is why the Pharisee, who believes that he is enlightened, ends up hating the people around him. Because he earned God's love, which means that they have not earned God's love. And if God cannot find a way to love them, then why should the Pharisee? So with this paradigm, the Pharisee believes that he is somehow superior to the people around him because he has earned God's love. And so the mirror actually enables the Pharisee's sin of vanity. The idea that one can earn God's love will always lead toward the hatred of others. This is why Jesus condemns the Pharisee in this parable and claims that those who find their sense of worth and sense of value in religion will one day be humbled. But this is not the end of the story. Now, we do not know much about the tax collector. In his short prayer, he asks for mercy and then confesses wrongdoing. After that short prayer, Jesus Christ says, that man with his prayer went home justified. When I consider these details, I believe that the tax collector went to the temple to ask the question, who am I? He closed his eyes, his knees touched the ground, and he stared into the self-reflecting mirror of prayer. But rather than getting an answer to that question, prayer inspired the tax collector to ask a question of himself. The question was, how am I part of the problem? Suddenly in prayer, he felt the pain he caused in his friends and family by betraying them for his own financial gain. He all of a sudden looked at things from another's perspective and realized he was part of a system that was taxing the poor to line the pockets of the rich. He saw himself taking from those who were in need and questioned the very basis of his work. And rather than get up from his prayer and go back to his life as normal, he realized that he was part of the problem and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because he knew that he deserved to be punished for the heartache that he caused. Now, we do not know the rest of the parable, but in my sanctified imagination, I believe that the tax collector made some serious changes in his life going forward from this prayer. When he held up the mirror 
to his soul and asked himself, how am I part of the problem? Now, this question may sound similar to religion wanting people to realize that they are a sinner because they are humans. But the difference for me is that religion's claim leads to lower self-esteem and bitterness. While the question, how am I part of the problem, leads to deeper contemplation and opens one's soul to transformation. Every one of us has experienced healthy and unhealthy religion. For me, the question, how am I part of the problem, is what separates healthy religion from unhealthy religion. We are called to avoid the Pharisees' temptation to use religion to enable our vanity. And instead, we are called to embrace humility, this humility that will ask us to be the ones who are willing to change. How am I part of the problem is a prayer of transformation that leads toward healthy spirituality. And this prayer and this parable remind me of one of the greatest pieces of literature penned in American history, the letter from a Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King Jr. In 1963, Dr. King described the city of Birmingham, Alabama, as probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. He, along with several other black Americans and allies, participated in nonviolent direct action to protest the city's commitment to white supremacy. This challenge was not well received by the white people of Birmingham. So white police officers arrested the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and threw him in jail. The very next morning, eight white Christian pastors came together and released a unity statement denouncing Martin Luther King and all of his supporters. Please note that these eight white Christian pastors did not denounce white supremacy. Instead, they condemned King for agitating locals and not working with due processes of law to inspire change. King, who was in jail, was enraged by the show of unity from these pastors. In that dark cell, on scraps of paper, he responded to these white pastors' criticisms with a letter. And 57 years ago, he wrote these words. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but instead is the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a, quote, more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. 
My friends, please take a moment and understand the gravity of Dr. King's words. He testifies that the worst kind of white Christian is not the white Christian that burns crosses. Instead, the worst kind of white Christian is the one who goes to prayer and asks the question, who am I? And as they gaze into the mirror of prayer, the answer they come away with is, I am not a racist. According to Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963, this is the worst, the worst kind of white Christian. To my white sisters, my white friends, and my white brothers, I don't know about you, but the events of the past four years have inspired a lot of soul searching in my prayer life. And when we go to prayer to contemplate who we are, and the conclusion we come away with is, thank God I'm not a racist. Then you know who we sound like? We sound exactly like the Pharisee praying at the temple. And nothing changes. Nothing changes because we view racism and white supremacy as someone else's problem. My friends, the world does not need any more white Christians who say, I am not a racist because what the world hears is white Christians saying, this is not my problem. But both Jesus Christ and Dr. King call us back to humility. What the world needs are Christians who are courageous enough to look into the mirror with discrimination and segregation and racism and sexism raging around us and offer the tax collector's prayer. We need to be bold enough to ask ourselves, how am I part of the problem? May this prayer open our hearts to transformation. May this prayer expose the privileges that we benefit from. May this prayer inspire us toward beauty. And may we work against racism, white supremacy, sexism, homophobia, and hate. And may we work toward greater empathy, greater equality, greater justice, and greater love. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all and ask ourselves the question, how am I part of the problem?